and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate and your gates of carbuncles and all of your walls of precious stones. All of your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for him to help us understand his word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for giving us your word today. We thank you that here we are given reason to celebrate. I pray that we as your people would exude that celebrating uh, celebrating spirit because of your work for us. I pray that we would see Christ Jesus more clearly and we would have life by him and his word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to relate a story to you now, uh, a story that I heard some years ago. And it is an actual historical story, but I have forgotten all of the details that lend itself uh, to the historical nature of the story. So you're just going to have to trust me that this actually happened. Uh, so at the, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, um, there was a man who was in the military. He was an officer in the military, and he was stationed somewhere in the East Coast, but then he was given orders to move to San Francisco to be stationed in San Francisco. He was a single man, uh, so he packed up all of his belongings, and he moved across country to San Francisco. And when he arrived there, he got an apartment, and lo and behold, there was a riot that was happening in the city. His apartment was downtown, uh, near downtown San Francisco, and there was a riot going on. Uh, I don't know much about the history of San Francisco, but I know this much, that there are always riots going on. People are always unhappy in San Francisco. It's the most beautiful city in the United States, apparently, but everyone's always mad. I, I don't know what the deal is with that. So here was this man. He was, had an apartment, 
new to the city, and downstairs from his apartment, there were rioters, there were clashes with the police, and all sort manner of things going on. And he thought to himself, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to see the sights of the city. And so he did. He walked out of his apartment, walked downstairs, walked into the street and, all, and around it. You know, there were police uh, and, and, and rioters clashing, fights breaking out, bottles breaking, explosions going off. But he was very calmly walking down the street, taking in the sights, almost giving no mind to the things that were happening around him. And as he was walking down the streets, he caught an unusual sight. He saw another man walking toward him very calmly with a lot of stability and fortitude with explosions and fights going off around him. But he was paying no mind to those things. And as he drew near to him, he looked in his face and he saw that the man was very calm he had a sense of security and fortitude about him. And they exchanged pleasantries. Hey, how, how are you doing? Very fine. Good. And they passed each other. And then the man thought to himself, he said, I need to ask him a question. So he turned, he faced the man's back and he said to him, he asked him this question, what is the chief end of man? And the man turned and he said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Both of those men had been raised in Scottish Presbyterian homes, hearing the catechism, learning the theology of the catechism, uh, the theology of the sovereignty of God. Both of them had reason for stability, for confidence, for courage in the midst of the chaos going on around them. Because the things that you believe matter and they change the way that you live your life. If your theology is one of fear, then you will fear. But if your theology is focused on and established on the sovereignty of God, on the goodness of God, on the work of God, then you will have courage and you will have reason to be stable and to show that stability in your life. Well, Isaiah today in this passage says, we have reason for confidence, yes, but we have an even greater reason to celebrate. We have a greater reason to sing and to not fear. Because of what we saw in the weeks prior in Isaiah 53, because of the work of the Messiah, we have reason to celebrate. And so in this passage today, we see the commands that he gives. So first, two commands that he gives in verses 1 through 8. The first one begins in verse 1. What's the first command? He says, sing. We are to sing. I want you to say, notice though, he said, who is, who is he talking to? Who should do the singing? Oh, barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. So who is he talking about there? Well, before we get to that, I just want to say something about infertility and barrenness, um, because oftentimes in the scriptures, uh, you see the biblical writers who were men talking about infertility and barrenness. And some people look at that and they say they don't understand it. They don't understand and they they delegitimize all of the feelings that go along and all of the emotions and all of the, the struggle that go along with infertility and barrenness. But that's not true. What the biblical writers do is they recognize the emotional agony of infertility. They, they recognize just how psychologically damaging and the wounds that come from infertility and, 
and barrenness. And they actually give voice to that by saying, those things are really bad. And if you've been through those things, you know what that's like. You know the experience of, and the pain that that causes. And you know that, that there's very little reason to sing in the midst of that. What Isaiah's doing is he's not saying that your feelings aren't legitimate, your pain isn't legitimate, but he's saying there is a reason to sing even in the struggles that you're going through. So who is the one that he's talking to? He says, oh, barren one. So there's, uh, this, is, uh, this is the Old Testament church. This is Israel. And Israel has been sent into exile away from God And there's a sense in which she, as the Old Testament church, has been barren and is not bearing children. So think of of the church, and if it helps you, I think it helps me do this, think of a local church. You know what happens to a local church if there are no children in the church? The church dies because there's no younger generation to come and to hear the faith and then to continue preaching and proclaiming the faith. That's what happens to a church if there's no young people in the church. Well, what's true for a local congregation is also true for the broader church. And that's what was going on for Israel. She was sent into exile and she's looking around saying, I have no children. I have no one to carry on the faith. And so she, as as a group, as a collective group of the Old Testament church said, I am barren and I have no children. And it's just like the pain of having no children and being infertile. But look at what Isaiah says. He says, you should sing. Sing for joy. Break out in celebration. And why does he say that? He says, because, the middle of verse 1, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Again, this is... This is uh, the Old Testament church personified in, in, as a woman, right? And it's almost like she is an unmarried woman. She has no children. She has no one to help her and provide for her. And you need to think about the nation of Israel because all around surrounding the nation of Israel, you had all of these other nations that were doing so well. We looked at them and saw the, the nation of Assyria and how strong the nation of Assyria was, how all of their wealth and power and all of the things that they did kind of aided the, their wealth and power. And they, began, they grew so strong and mighty. And Israel says, but our God is the true God. Why is Assyria doing so well? Well, it's because in some people's minds, they were married to their gods. And their gods were the ones that were benefiting them. The same is true for the Babylonians. The same is true for the Egyptians. And here is tiny, barren Israel saying, what about us? We are meant to be married to the one true God, and yet we have nothing to show for it. But Isaiah says, sing for the children. Your children, Israel, will be more than those nations around you. And he goes on and he says, enlarge the place of your tent. Basically, unfold your tent. Expand it out because it's going to grow larger and larger and larger. And it's the picture of a family growing larger and larger and the joy that comes from having children And he says, verse 3, it gets even better. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nation. All of those nations that seem to be doing so well, the promise from God to his people is that your children will actually go into those, and they will possess those nations. They will go into their cities, and they will expand 
until, until they are possessing the cities around them. He gives the Old Testament church reason to sing because of their growth, because of all of the things that are going to happen. Um, all right, so that's the first command. The first thing you see is that the Old Testament church is to sing. And the second command comes in verse 4. He says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Now, fear is a prominent theme in the Scriptures all through, Old and New Testament. Fear is talked about all the time. And sometimes in the Scriptures, we are commanded to fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Jesus says, that's from Proverbs and the Psalms. And, and Jesus says in the New Testament, he says, you should not fear man who can kill the body, but fear God who can cure, kill both the body and the soul. So even Jesus commands a certain kind of fear. And fear is oftentimes a good thing. But here, Isaiah commands us, and God commands us through Isaiah, to fear not. So which is it? What should we do? Should we fear or should we not fear? And the answer is both, because we need to understand that there are different kinds of fear. There is the kind of fear that you have that lends itself to respect, like if you're doing yard work and you look down and you see a copperhead in the yard, right? That's a certain kind of fear, but it's one of respect. It's a healthy respect that you have for the power that is there in that snake, Um. But then there's another kind of fear that lends itself to anxiety and worry. Fear of the future and fear of the things that are coming. And that's the kind of fear that, that the Old Testament church was commanded to not have. And why is that? He says, fear not for you will not be ashamed. You will not be confounded. You will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Essentially, he's saying, you know, you Israel who have been sent off and abandoned by the Lord, essentially divorced by God, it's like you're a widow. All right, a woman in this position in the ancient world only had two options for taking care of herself if she had no children, which we just saw. She doesn't have any children. There are only two options. And the, neither one of those options are very good. And so you can understand the kind of anguish that a woman in that position would be in. She would be in a lot of anxiety. She would be in a lot of emotional turmoil, not to mention the kind of uh, fear that she would have for uh, not knowing where she would get her next meal and not knowing anything else or knowing what, what's going to happen to her next. And on top of that, she would be shunned by her community. She would be driven out and shunned by everyone who loves her. She would be in a constant state of anxiety. We understand that. But Isaiah says, you shall not fear, even though you're in that position. And why should she not fear? Verse 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. God says, because here's why you should not fear, because I'm coming to reclaim you as my wife. I'm coming to take care of you. Now, why was she cast off to begin with? And it's very clear, God says, I cast you off. We were married. I married myself to Israel, but I did cast you off. Look in verse 7. For a brief moment, I deserted you. 
Verse eight, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. Those are two kind of phrases that mean I divorced you. For a time, I divorced you, what God says. What he's saying is, and we need to remember, she deserved to be divorced. She was not faithful to God. She was the one that abandoned him first. She left him. She cheated on him. And God says, you deserve to be abandoned eternally. But God says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I am coming for you. And therefore, because I am coming for you to be your husband, to have compassion on you, everlasting love at the end of verse 8, both everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Isaiah says, fear not, for the Lord will love you in this way. There's reason to celebrate because the Lord comes for his people, even though his people do not deserve it. Now, these two commands are given to the, to the Old Testament church. But they're also, because the Old Testament church is, is also like the New Testament church, um, and we're all one church together, old and new, uh, those commands are also given to us because we are part of the New Testament church. The church today should sing, celebrate, and should not fear. We are to, we need to understand that it is through the celebration of his people that the Lord expands his family. And we are not to be afraid of the future. There is a tendency in local churches to kind of, the elders, the leadership, but also in the people to kind of wring our hands and worry about the things that are coming for that church. What's going to happen next? Are we going to survive? And we anxiously fret over the future of the church. But the church is not called to fret. The church is called to, to go out into the world to preach the gospel and baptize, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. That's the Great Commission in Matthew. And also Ephesians 4, you can see some of the work of the church and other places in the New Testament, the things we are supposed to be doing. But the primary calling of the church is to celebrate and not fear. That was true of the Old Testament church, and that's true for us as well. If you are concerned about the church, what should you do? You should celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is all about church growth. You don't grow the church by inventing all sorts of new ways to get people attracted to the church. You don't grow the church by creating all kinds of programs for people to be involved in and trying to meet everyone's needs. The way that you grow the church is you celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ and what the Messiah has done. You sing about the glory of God. That's what you do. That's what you do here, but that's also what you do in your life with your families day to day. As you are intermingling with other people, you are to sing about the glory of God. And if you have a bad voice, that's all right. Just say the words. Celebrate God in everything that you do. That needs to be the first thing that you do. And secondly, don't fear. Are you anxious today about your future? Are you anxious today about the things that are coming that you don't know what's coming around the bend? Guess what? You don't know what's coming around the bend. You don't know what the Lord has in store. Except that you know that whatever it is, the Lord intends your good for it. Whatever it is, 
It might be something really hard. It might be something really difficult. As Paul said, he went through suffering and it was for his good and it was for God's glory and it was for the good of the church. You don't know what it is. But you are still called to not fear. Why? Because the Lord has not left you. He has not forsaken you. So do you, do you individually celebrate the Lord day by day, every day, in your families, in your life, with your friends, with your loved ones, with people in the grocery store? Are you celebrating the work of the Messiah for you? And do you fear the future? If those things are true, here's what you do. Look to Christ. Go back and read Isaiah 53. Read the Gospels and see how much God loves you. We are to sing. We are to not fear. We are to be a people who celebrate. Secondly, here you see in this passage, in verses 9 and 10, a reminder and a promise. God gives a reminder and a promise. Look at what he says. He goes, you know what this is like? You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the days of Noah. He says, I want you to remember your biblical history. And you can go back and do this later. You can go back and read Genesis chapter 9 through 10, but really focus on Genesis chapters 8 and 9, where you see Noah and his family. And after, after a long time on that ark, after the Lord flooded the earth, and killed all of the people on the earth. He made the waters recede and Noah and his family came off of the ark. And you know what they did? You know what the first thing they did was? They celebrated. And they celebrated by worshiping. What Noah did was he built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of the animals that were on the boat with them. And he slaughtered those animals to worship the Lord. Now, that doesn't make any sense if you're looking at things in a purely naturalistic way. He was killing his food source and burning it. It doesn't make any sense to do that. But he was acting in faith, knowing that those were the things that the Lord wanted him to do. And he trusted that the Lord would provide for him. Even though he burnt up his food supply, he said, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to worship. I'm going to celebrate. And then uh, this is what God says after all of those things, after he is sacrificed to the Lord, um, we're told that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And he said this, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again should there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then because whenever God makes a covenant with his people, he attaches signs and, and seals to them. He said this. He said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, whenever I read that, what you're probably thinking of, what biblical illustrators want us to think. They think of this bucolic and lovely scene, the scene of great peace. And you have that beautiful rainbow that's, that's um, arcing, arching in the, in the distance. And you, maybe you have a view like I have of Noah and he's got a giraffe around one arm and, and a sheep around the other and all the animals are smiling, right? But the problem is that 
That's not what the Bible is saying here. Because the view that we should have is when Noah comes off the ark and when God comes to meet with Noah, it is not a peaceful scene. It is a bloody battlefield. And God, as the warrior, is standing over that bloody battlefield, having dealt with the sin of humanity. And what does he say? He takes his bow, an instrument of war, and he lays it down and he says, I have no more anger. At this time, I have no more anger for humanity. But as we know, his anger begins to grow again. But he's promised there that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. But for that time, he laid down his bow. And here's what God is saying. He says, this reminds me, this covenant that I'm making today reminds me of what happened in the days of Noah. But there's something that's essentially different about then. He said, I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. Here's what God is saying. That because of the work of the Messiah that we saw in Isaiah 53, Because the Messiah is the one that took the wrath of God for his people. You see, God again picked up the bow. And instead of sending the arrow on you who deserve it, he sent it on his son, Jesus Christ. And he said, because of that, I am again laying down my bow for you. And this is a permanent thing that he is doing Verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. If I were a teacher, um, if I could, I would quiz you on that word steadfast love because I want you, every time you read that in your Bibles, I want you to have the Hebrew word. I want you to actually know it so well that you replace the Hebrew word. Because the Hebrew word that's there is the word hesed. And about once a month, I remind you of this. Hesed, hesed. Hesed. And the biblical translators have no idea what to do with that word because there is not a one-to-one word translation from the Hebrew to the English. And so they add words together. They talk about the eternal loyal covenant of God or the steadfast love of God. And that one word, it's so important for you to understand because, because it is the way that God treats you according to his love, according to his compassion. And I have this reminder up here. I'm going to read it again. And almost every time I preach on this and I use this word, I I read this to you because it's my constant reminder about the thing that I have to tell you about. Hesed love is one way love, love without an exit strategy. In Hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. God in his Hesed love says, I am binding myself to you and I know you and I know what you're like. And I don't have an exit strategy for my love for you is greater than anything that you can do to get away from me. Look at the permanence here. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. That word compassion, it's a word that is, uh, it's got a, a beautiful visual image behind it. It's the word that's used of fathers in their care for their children. And it's the word that's used of a father who As his child was walking past, he grabs his child and he holds him and squeezes him tight and he whispers in his ear, I love you. You're mine. I love you. That's the kind of compassion that God has for you this morning. 
That is the great promise of God to his people because he has taken all of your transgressions on himself. Everything God whispers in your ear, I love you, I care for you. Because he takes the arrow that you deserve. You see a reminder and a promise. And then third, you see an inheritance. Look in verses 11 through 17. Yahweh goes on through Isaiah to explain the benefits to his children because of his great love for them. And he uses an interesting uh, little analogy here. He says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your, your foundations with sapphires. Um, a couple things are going on in that passage. Uh, a few years ago, we gave my nephew Cain a gift for Christmas. It was a rock polisher. If you've never seen these things, they're, they're pretty cool little devices. What you do is you take a bunch of rocks and you put them in this thing that's about this big. And you put a little bit of water in there and you turn it on. And then it makes the, most, the, the worst racket that you've ever heard. Because it sounds like stones being forcefully grinded against each other. And that's exactly what it is. And you leave it going for about 12 to 24 hours. And after all this racket, sounds terrible. After all of that, for 12 to 24 hours, you open it up and the water and the stones toss together, rubbing against each other, and they come out polished and smooth. And that's what God is saying. My people have been put through the ringer. They have been like a stone in the sea, like seashells rubbing up against each other. But this is what happens to them. They come out. And they're like beautiful, polished gems. He says, I will set you, and I will set you an antimony. I had no idea what antimony was before I studied this, but it's on the periodic table. It's an element. And so this could mean two things. It could mean that I will set you in that, but in the ancient days, because of the properties of the, of the stone antimony, it was able to be melted down and joined with precious metals to make them even, even stronger. And so they would use these in different, different jewelry to make the setting strong. And God says, I will set you. This is the benefit of being loved by God. I will set you in strength. But notice you're a beautiful stone polished by all the suffering you've been through. And I will set you in strength. That's what all of those things. And it reminds me of what he says to the church in Revelation, where he talks about the beauty of the church in Revelation, that she is adorned in beauty. She's covered with all of these jewels. He says, that's the benefit. I will adorn you in beauty. Verse 13, he goes on, all of your children will be taught by the Lord. Because it is the desire of parents that their children would know the Lord. But how great is it that they not only know the Lord, but they're taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. Because parents want for their children to have peace over everything else. And God promises that to his people. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. These people who had been through oppression, who had been through suffering, God says, this is the benefit. I'm going to keep it from you. But it's interesting the way that he says that. Because as soon as he says that, in verse 15, he talks about anyone stirring up strife. And he talks about these weapons that are formed. He's talking about forging weapons in a fire. And he says, even if someone comes against you, even if you have enemies, which 
Christians have enemies. And even if there are evil people in the world, and there are evil people in the world looking to, to, uh, to kill the church, even if all of those things are taking place, do not worry about them. Why? Because he says in verse 16, I am the one that has created the smith who blows the fires of coal, who produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. What God is saying is I am sovereign over all of those people who are, who are trying to do evil against my people. I'm the one in charge of them. I made the blacksmith who makes the weapons. I'm the one that gave him the skill. So guess what? When those weapons come against you, verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in, judge, in judgment. God is reminding his people that they will succeed in this life. And that success may look different than any other success according to the world's standards. He doesn't say that no weapon is going to come against you. He says, when those weapons come against you, they will not be successful. Again, the benefit to God's people. And then he says at the end of verse 17, this is the, the heritage or this is the inheritance of the servants of the Lord and their justification or vindication from me, declares the Lord. The Lord is the one who vindicates his people, who makes his people secure. He is the one who takes care of his people. And this is your heritage if you are in the Lord. This is reason to celebrate. Let me conclude in this way. Some of you know my dad, um, and, and I would describe my dad as a frugal man. Um, growing up, my dad would buy the cheapest S10 Chevrolet pickup truck that you could buy, and it was always a standard. Um, and... They were not cars that I would ever recommend anybody buy. They're just, they're not fun to drive. They're, they're very practical, okay? Um, and I remember he would drive an S10 pickup truck every single day, and he would keep it going until it would last for 400,000 miles or more. Um, and then when that one would finally die and he couldn't keep it going, he would go buy another S10 pickup truck. And that went on and on and on. And I never saw him buy anything expensive for himself. I never saw him go out of his way to buy anything just for him. And it, but if he did have to do something like that, he would do his research. He would never buy the absolute best. He would buy the one that he thought he could get away with, you know. And he did it for a good reason. And I now realize he did it because he was wanting for us, his children, to have the very best. So my dad is a frugal man, but he's not cheap. There's a difference between being frugal and cheap. Here's the difference. When it's time to celebrate, my dad has no problem spending money. Let me give you three examples. When I finally graduated from college after seven and a half years, my dad said, Kelly, we're going to throw you a huge party and we're going to invite everybody we know. And I'm going to cook all the food. I'm going to provide all the drinks. And we're going to celebrate because it was a good thing to celebrate. And it was a great party. When Amy and I got married for our rehearsal dinner, my dad got so excited. He said, Kelly, we're going to throw you and Amy the best party to celebrate. 
He said, you know, Larry can have his night, that Amy's dad. He can have he can pay for most of it, right? But we're gonna throw you the absolute best party. He met with the caterers, he planned the menu, he planned the decorations, he went overboard in doing all that because he said, This is a reason to celebrate. Look, my son is getting married. Come celebrate with me. And when I graduated seminary, it was like a year later after we got married, I graduated seminary. And dad said, Kelly, we're going to throw you a great party. I said, dad, you just threw me a party. It doesn't matter. Let's celebrate. Invite all of your friends. Invite all of your professors. And in Jackson, Mississippi, we threw the largest crawfish boil that Jackson, Mississippi, I think has ever seen. It was a glorious night. And we all celebrated. My dad had a reason to celebrate. Because he loves me. And he cares for me. Your father celebrates you as well. He loves you. He cares for you. And he has abundantly given you all things that you need, not everything you want, but everything that you need for his glory and for your good. And you have reason to celebrate. If you know Jesus Christ, you have reason to celebrate. I hope that in everything that you do in all of your life, you are celebrating and you live your life in celebration. You will if you know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today and I pray that, that by it we might truly understand what Christ has done for us, that we might be a people who are marked by celebration. We pray this, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn.